The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I first of all want to say how honored I feel to be invited to speak at the Ezra Institute and honored by you folks coming here today. There are other ways of spending Saturday, right? Uh, I usually spend it playing golf myself, and I know that you have other more useful things to do with your time. So thank you for being here, and it's a delight for me to be in your wonderful country. And uh, my part in today is trying to describe the situation in which we are trying to reclaim a biblical view of sexuality. That sort of means that we've lost something. And I think it's important that we understand the movements in our culture that have put into radical question what mistaken as normative for hundreds and hundreds of years. As Randy indicated, heterosexuality was assumed as totally normal until a few years ago, as a matter of fact. Until right now, we see, as he said, Justice Kennedy telling us that the only reason that the law on heterosexual marriage would pass was because of animus, a hatred against homosexuality. Now, is the sexual state of the West simply the result of laxness, you know, people being tempted, we all are, uh, to be lax in our praxis? Or is there something more powerful behind the laxity, the promiscuity that we now see proposed to us as a valid form of life? And my task in my two lectures will be to try to explain what is going on, if you like, at a much deeper level. And I want to do this because I feel that Christians really do need to grasp the deeper level of what's happening. Instead of just denouncing things as bad, but to be able to place what's happening at a much deeper level of worldview fundamental understanding of the nature of the world as God proposes it to us and as this other movement that I call paganism proposes. My argument is really that there are only two ways of putting the world together, either from a pagan point of view or from a biblical God-honoring point of view. That's nice and simple. Only two ways. Only two religions. Now, I want to propose to you today, and I didn't ask Randy what time I should actually end my lecture. 10.40. But he's going to tell me when I sort of get to the end, and uh, I'll stop immediately. So, I, I would like to uh, propose to you now a sort of an overview of what I believe has happened in the culture. I left, well, I came to America and thought I'd died and gone to heaven because everything was so Christian. In 1964, I came to Liverpool. And uh, then I went and taught in the south of France, in godless, secular France. And so I looked forward to coming back to North America to rediscover a real commitment to some kind of Christianity. And when I came back in 91, I was shocked. And I went through culture shock, and I tried to put my finger on what was happening. And the first book that I wrote, actually, six months after I came back to the United States, was entitled The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back. Neat title, right? Some of you know immediately to what is referring the Empire Strikes Back. And I 
began to write about this subject, my next book was um, Spirit Wars. Notice I'm developing a theme. <laughs> uh, I actually did write the third in my so-called trilogy, but I never got to call it what I really wanted to call it, which was Return of the Rabbi. <laughs> And it is now called the Turn of the Rabbi. So I finally got my trilogy. <laughs> so I've been spending the last 20 years of my life, and I didn't expect to, in trying to put my finger on exactly what was happening to the West. So this is what I'm trying to give to you in, in a few minutes. And hopefully it will be helpful to you. And uh, I call it, the, this lecture, the five points of oneism. I use all kinds of terms for this movement. Paganism, some people like the term Gnosticism, which I did use at some point. But I've come to think that the simplest way of talking about this movement is the term oneism, basically because nobody knows what it means. So when you tell people that oneism, they say thank you very much. They don't think you're insulting them. Whereas if you told them they were pagan, they'd be offended. I'm being slightly facetious here, but I do think that oneism says very clearly what we're looking at, which is namely that everything in the world is one, but as a matter of fact, all the cosmos, there's nothing outside of it, so everything is one. I'd like to show you the aspects of this oneist way of thinking. And uh, before I do that, it struck me on the way here. When you think of oneism, think of a circle, and you'll see a lot of circles in this PowerPoint. It's the idea that everything is together, everything's the same. And uh, really, that's the origin, it seems to me, whether the gays know it, of the accusation that we are phobic, that we are using hate speech, because it is actually breaking the unity of existence now being constructed. You know, Tacitus, in the first century, said that the Christians were haters of humanity, because they were blowing open the Pax Romana, was a fellow in Perth, Scotland, a few weeks ago, preaching the gospel, and he was arrested. And the accusation was a breach of the peace. A breach of the peace. The gospel is now, you see, the breaking of the Pax Pagana that is growing up around us. This nicely constructed oneness wound into which we are all introduced feels very threatened, you see, by the Christian gospel. That's messing up this attempt to bring the world together and save the planet and save humanity. Do you get the big picture already? I haven't even started my lecture, but I'm trying to get you interested in what I will say. That, uh, these are the states, they're big states. So that sexuality is just one aspect of how you put this holistic, which is a term now often used within a WH, this holistic, oneist vision of everything together. So I want to look at the five points of oneism. Do you have this uh, in Canada? Yes. Nothing really now is limited to California. <laughs> we used to say that, you know, you can only see that in California, but now, of course, this indicates what I'm saying. You see, that this vision of a holistic, oneist world is proposed through this bumper sticker of coexistence. 
We really have to learn how to get along all together. And we should because there really only is one reality. <coughs> of course, this is becoming a really powerful agenda. There's a new seminar somewhere in the United States honoring all the paths to see these various symbols of the various religions. And this seminary is producing pastors, priests, gurus, imams. It's a new kind of seminary that used to be a Christian seminary. So this, this idea of bringing everything together is really come into the Christian church. Obviously, at this point, into the liberal Christian church, but there are movements within evangelicalism that naively are embracing this kind of a vision. That's why it's important that you Christians really understand what's happening, because the fight is actually coming into our own midst. And I challenge you to think about the elements of oneism that you see within the Christian community. Now, I'm not saying you go around smacking people on the head and say you're oneist, and they say, no, I'm a Christian just like you. But I think they need wisdom. I think they need help sometimes. There's an awful lack of, of solid theology going on in our evangelical world. So we need to bring some sense, some theological, God-honoring sense to the situation in which we find ourselves. Not to be holier than thou or better than you, but simply to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear on the bride of Christ. I never thought that this would be the struggle like that. I've been doing this thinking, thinking of the, the outside pagan world and how they need to to hear the truth, but more and more I'm seeing this happening in our churches. So the five points of pagan oneism, you'll notice, I'll give them to you, and you'll notice that in every one of them is the word one. This is a wonderful speaking technique. <clears throat> Repetition. All religions are one. There's one problem and one solution. So I will go through these five and try to show you the essence of this ideology of oneism as it's making its way throughout the West. I, I guess I should say some of you rightly would remind me that the axis of the Christian faith has moved away from the West. And there's hope elsewhere. The only shadow, it seems to me, on that optimistic view that you know the Africans will save us or the Chinese, the underground church will save us, is that this oneism has taken over and completely dominates the imagination. That's all I would say. There is a planetary aspect to this struggle right now. And I don't know how that will work out in the end. But the West and the United Nations really have adopted this kind of thinking. All is one. This is the cathedral, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And that's our on the floor of Grace Cathedral is called a labyrinth. This comes out of ancient paganism. It's been rediscovered by various kinds of Christians as a help uh, in the developing of our sense of our closeness to God. Um, the person who promoted this is an ordained minister of this cathedral in San Francisco, appropriately, I guess. 
And she says, the labyrinth is a large, complex spiral circle, which is an ancient symbol for the Divine Mother, the God within, the Goddess, the Holy in all creation. That's a terrible use of the term holy, by the way. It's a complete unholy mixing of creation and God. But see, this is being proposed as a way for Christians to get in touch with God. But at least this woman, who's a, a real liberal, admits that it's not getting in touch with the God of Scripture, the God who created the world and is distinct from it, but the God who is within nature, that is to say, the worship of creation. But there are evangelical churches using the labyrinth. I would say out of almost total ignorance, there's one more technique for getting in touch with Jesus. But you see, how dangerous it is, if this is what this symbol means, that we are teaching generations to come that this is okay. That this is, you know, we've been involved in, in California with the whole issue of yoga. And you could put a nice side of yoga and say it's just exercise and so on, but you know, it was being brought into the schools and kids were being obliged to use it, and it is now in practice in the schools in certain places in California, and to me, one of its great dangers is the subtle brainwashing of children that the deep message of yoga proposes to be at one with yourself and with nature probably talk about that, but um, that's the way this has happened uh, in our modern world. We're being programmed to rethink the whole issue of the nature of existence and the nature of God and how God is involved with us. So this labyrinth is one example of that. That was just the introduction to my first point. How we do for time. Um, I want you to think of one as more paganism as a circle. This will be a very graphic kind of lecture, because I want to give to you something you will never forget for the rest of your life. And and to do that, I'm proposing to you to think of paganism or oneism as a circle. And into the circle goes everything. Rocks and trees and human beings. Oh, and by the way, God. God who is separate is taken. This is unlike secular humanism, which rejects any notion of God. This very subtle, seductive kind of thinking wants to include God, but includes Him by bringing Him into the circle. So this kind of spirituality, you see, can use spiritual terms and notions and seek to develop spiritual experiences. But it's all within the oneness circle. So everything is in the circle and God is taken from His biblical place above the heavens and relocating God within nature. That's the basic move that's being made. That's simple, but it's absolutely essential to see that. So oneism includes everything. When I went to the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 93, this vast exhibit hall of all the religions, there were 125 of them, I was struck by how many of them used the circle. So I don't think I'm really imposing a, a false symbolism on this kind of thinking. The circle is, in Sanskrit, a mandala. You've heard of that. That's Sanskrit for the notion of wholeness, peace and healing in a oneness system. And uh, many in the West are now using mandalas, circles, uh, to imprint 
on their minds this very notion. I remember some Buddhist uh, priest who came to the National uh, uh, Cathedral in, in, uh, West, in uh, Washington some years ago, and they made these sand mandalas. And the president went in there and was ooing and gooing at these wonderful creations. But, I see, we don't understand what's happening, but what is being imprinted on our minds is the serpent, in which we all are. Now, there are all kinds of circles. Does anyone know what this one is? This is the, well, you can see what it is. It's made up of the yin and the yang in those little circles. And the, the yin and the yang is actually the joining of the opposites, which is essential to the circle, you see. There are no ultimate dichotomies. There are no final opposites. Everything is joined. The circle brings everything together, and, and things that seem opposed are only points on the circumference of the circle, and thus perspectives. So the yin and the yang from Eastern religions is really saying that, the joining of these notions. The swastika is an interesting notion. It's a form of a circle because it's, it's pointing to a movement that goes around and around of goodness and happiness. Now, this particular uh, symbol is used by the Falun Gong in communist China. And the secular Chinese are trying to wipe out this group. The swastika, I thought Hitler invented the swastika. But Hitler and some of his SS people were fascinated by Eastern religion. And they dabbled in that kind of thinking. And the swastika is from Sanskrit, again, means being fortunate. The proof that Hitler didn't invent this is an ancient Buddhist statue of the Buddha. And look what's on his chest. It's a perfectly Eastern symbol of one as it comes out of the mists of time. There are all kinds of circles, and I hope you never watch the news again without noticing circles, because you all came to this town on circles, wheels. So they're not bad in themselves. God created circles, but they can be misused and used to express the whole of reality. So you have the wheel of life in Tibetan Hindu thinking. The Aztecs have a wheel. You remember the whirling dervishes of Sufism? They dance in a circle. Aboriginal dreaming in, in um, Australia, they also dance in a circle. Stonehenge in my home country. What's the shape of stone? It's a circle. The American Indian Medicine Wheel, and you could probably add many examples to the symbolism of what is paganism. Here's a good one. Because I'm a Greek teacher, and uh, this one is called the Uroboros. It's the serpent with its tail in its mouth. So the serpent represents wholeness in his life. As he sheds his skin every year and is reborn, this system goes on and on and on. But this is a very ancient symbol. It comes from uh, early times. The Gnostics used this symbol. Entopas is the Greek term, all is one. So Algoa didn't invent that. That was a joke, folks. Like, <laughs> uh, this comes from ancient times. This particular uh, 
expression of it is from first century Egypt. And then, of course, it was common in Hinduism, Gnosticism, and even Norse mythology. And that, oh, I won't bother with that. That's just an description of it. Well, maybe I will. Kurovos, the tale in this ancient codex, stands from the 10th or 11th century. So this is a medieval example. Time and again, the alchemists who bought this simple reiterate that the opus, their great experiment or work, proceeds from the one and leads back to the one. So a circle with a dragon biting its tail. So the opus of the alchemists in the Middle Ages was based on the circle, the wheel. And here's proof of this. Look at that. In 1478, you find an example of this Urabos. And there's another one. So this is a symbol, you see, that goes through time. And that's what I really want to show you today, is that this kind of thinking is not new. Now you'll talk to progressives and they will say, we're all involved in a new spirituality, <laughs> that uh, we're going forward, but you poor Christians are going backwards. You're so hooked into traditionalism and the past. We are moving forward to a glorious future. As a matter of fact, they're moving back just like you are. They're going back to the 6th century BC and Buddha. So, it's not true what they claim, and it's important that you see that, so that you can denounce that false advertising that what you hear today is progressive, is really new. It's not new at all. And I think the, just these uh, pictures of the Ouroboros throughout history shows you that that's the case. And here's one very modern one from the Scandinavian rock band. Punk rock. Here it is as a symbol of theosophy. Maybe some of you don't know what theosophy is, but it was invented by Madame Helena Blavatsky from Russia at the end of the 19th century, or towards the end of the 19th century. And she wanted to bring the East and the West together. Hinduism and Western thinking, joining them together. But she actually, to do this, got deeply involved in the occult, which is what you have to do. What you don't know is that Mikhail Gorbachev, when he declared Perestroika, also republished the works of Helena Blavatsky the same year because he was a theosophist. Oh, yes. He was not a secular Marxist humanist. I mean, he was on the outside, but he was actually a theosophist. And so was his wife. And he joined with a Canadian. Some of you may know the name of Morris Strong. Anyone heard the name Morris Strong? Oh, you should know your history. But it's very recent history. Morris Strong is one of the major players in the United Nations, a Canadian uh, businessman who made his millions in oil and so on, and then began to be drawn into theosophy. And there's really, with Mikhail Gorbachev, set the agenda for the United Nations. Right now, in the, well, I, I got off my subject here, but this is the symbol of theosophy, and that too, as you see, has the Ouroboros and the swastika. There really is nothing new under the sun. It's presented always as brand new, but it isn't. Well, that was my first point. How are we doing? I got off of it. The second point, if all is one and you bring everything together into the same reality and make everything one, then 
What do you say about humanity? Well, here's the good news. Humanity is one. If, if, if the whole of existence is one, then humanity is one. And those little circles represent human beings who really are, as is said often in pagan literature throughout history, that the human being is the microcosm of the macrocosm, the little circle that represents the big circle. So each one of you is, carries within you the secret of existence. And as a matter of fact, in you is the secret of existence, but you have to go and find it. You have to go within yourself. And we'll get to this. But this is the importance of the spiritual seeking of the higher self within. See, because within you is the answer to all the problems of the world. And it's a very spiritual solution. But now I present it in this way, which can be seen in many different ways. But here's the basis of it. Harold Bloom, who is a professor of Shakespeare, world expert at Yale, who uh, was obviously, well, it, was, it isn't obvious, but Bloom, unlike Boot, is, uh, is a Jewish name. Maybe Boot is, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's Dutch. But, um, he became a Gnostic as a young student. And this is what he said in his liberating experience. I am uncreated as old as God. See, that's what you have to understand if you are the microcosm of the macrocosm. The truth is inside of you, and the truth is that you are uncreated as old as God. In other words, you, are, you give to yourself the divine attributes of eternity. And of course, the Christians, some of them follow this blindly, the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart, who, who many cite now as an example of Christian mysticism, says something I think very pagan. There is something in the soul that is uncreated and uncreatable. He's basically saying, you see, that there's something within that we have to touch. And that is uncreated. Well, see, the problem with that is only God is uncreated. Everything else is created. As soon as you say there's something in me that's uncreated, you are actually claiming attributes of God. And subtly, while you don't realize it, you're beginning to collapse the distinction between you and God and join God and you together which is what the labyrinth does, which is what these mystical techniques try to do to get you to believe that kind of thinking. But this is also a fascinating idea on other levels, not just in spirituality. You know, the idea of bringing humans together causes politicians go gather. Think of the power if we could bring everybody together. And so you get the kind of spiritual thinking, which is also geopolitical, of the end of the nation state, the unity economically and culturally. But the goal is always human transformation. We cannot do this without changing the way human beings are. And the goal is always, a, in this world, a utopia. We're going to change the world. We're going to solve all the problems. With this view of humanity, you see, we can genuinely expect to be able to create a utopia on Earth. So it's a massive experiment, really. But it's always been the case. My dear friend Joe has written on utopia. and. Uh, one of the articles of the journal, and you should read that. It's the most interesting piece. But it, besides Thomas Molnar, a Roman Catholic scholar who wrote on Utopia, who 
shows that throughout history, this has been the great temptation of human beings to want to establish a utopian world where all our problems have been solved. It's sort of a twisting of the biblical worldview, really, where God will finally do all this. And so we cannot expunge the idea of utopia from our souls, it's true. But to think that we can do it, really, is to oppose God's program. There are all kinds of spiritual movements as well that want to bring about this <coughs> utopia in our future, not really our immediate future. And I pulled a few of these together. The feminists speak about a Sophianic millennium. That's the dominion of the goddess Sophia. Some of the gays speak about the coming of eschatological Sodom, which is supposedly going to be a good thing as well. The Age of Aquarius has that notion too. I know some of you sang that song, it was great. Didn't understand a word of it, neither did I. But this is what it turns out to be this vision that in the year 2000, things will change and we will move towards this age of Aquarius. Now, of course, according to the uh, zodiac, the prior 2000 year age was the age of Pisces. And this works out awfully nicely for a pagan eschatology because, as you know, Pisces the fish is the sign of Christianity. And so you have 2000 years of Christianity, and now they say that was, that was the Christian interlude. Isn't that interesting? The Christian interlude of 2000 years. What went with an interlude is between two things, right? What was before it? The Greco-Roman pagan empire. What's ahead of it? Well, the pagan age of Aquarius. See, these are, these are big issues. I'm not, for one moment, you know, basing my life on this pagan eschatology, but it's just interesting to see how they conceive of the future in a very triumphalistic kind of way. And so, the problems that we will talk about today are not going away, all right? This is the world in which we will reclaim biblical sexuality for us in order to witness that to a world that is going further and further away from the Bible's view. I'm not saying, Joe, that things won't turn around, but I am talking about the immediate present. And I think we have to. That in the immediate present, we need to be solid in how we understand these two worldviews in order that we speak the truth. Both with intelligence and with uh, clarity and with grace. I think understanding these issues this way gives you much more of an ability to speak with calmness about the way things are. So these are the movements that are claiming the immediate future for our planet. Remember the Mayan calendar was supposed to predict this new age. That one didn't quite work. The emergent church is talking about a deep shift. It's interesting to see how many pagans are also talking about the great shift. So how easily evangelicals get wrapped up in this kind of thinking. There it is. The global shift is now what's on the horizon. Quantum spirituality is based upon quantum physics where everything is related together. It's a sign of spiritual unity. Ah, the, the Muslims have a sort of eschatology, especially in Iran. They've been awaiting the coming of the 12th Imam, who was a kind of messianic figure. The Buddhist temple, Maitreya. Some of them believe that Maitreya has already come to earth. He's working disguised as a barber in Fulham. Um, but he hasn't revealed himself to the world yet. 
but he will soon. Then there's the myth of Isis, which goes along with the Sophianic millennium, but how many feminists have really reconnected with the ancient Egyptian pagan notions of the goddess Isis, which was a fundamental factor in the Greco-Roman Empire. And then the arrival of Kabbalah, which is a Gnostic Judaism, pagan view of spirituality. Oh, I, I guess we have another emergent thinker here, Phyllis Tickle. You're thinking tickles me quite a bit. <laughs> but she's talking about the great emergence, that things are now radically changing. But I, I'm just amazed to see how some of these evangelicals are taking this moment which is, I believe, paganly driven and trying to put a Christian spin on it. I think we have to do the opposite to make sense. Of course, this agenda is proposed in very powerful ways. Eckhart Tolle chose the name Eckhart because of Meister Eckhart, a 12th century Christian mystic. He's no Christian at all. But he certainly convinced Oprah Winfrey, and she was proposing this stuff. Well, it's very optimistic. Oneism claims that will end, end human depression and egotism. That's a good one. Religious fear and conflict. So long as all the religions are one, of course. There's no conflict. The end of international conflict, the end of the ecological crisis, and most of all, the transformation of human consciousness. This is clearly key because human depression and egotism will not change unless we have a transformation of human consciousness. What do they mean by that? Well, they mean that human beings need to get to a point where they understand their own divinity. So the whole experiential, mystical push is essential to this worldview of utopia to come about. It's not sort of a sideline that some people might be interested in. It's essential. Here's the third point, all religions are one. Uh, the circle is maintained because often you will find religions presented as various pieces of pie and that we need all the pieces to understand religion, but they're all basically saying the same thing. On the external part of this pie is the crust, which is difficult to get through, and that, uh, that, that is the various traditions and scriptures which seem to be opposed. But in the middle, now I'm changing the image of a pizza, think of the ooey-gooey cheese center. That's the real essence of all the religions. Because according to what is now being said, all the religions agree on the goal of the religious quest. I read a book a couple of weeks ago entitled The Coming of the Interspiritual Age. The Coming of the Interspiritual Age. And that's the age when all the basic spiritualities of Come together. We can ditch the doctrines and the scriptures of these various religions because we're all joined in this notion of the human being becoming God. That's the ooey gooey center. So that's the hope for all the religions. Now you see, they would be happy if Christianity would be a piece of that pie or piece of Then you can include Christianity within 
all these religions. And so we'll come together and understand everything. But I believe that Christianity doesn't fit into this circle. For proof, I mentioned this the other day, I think, when I was at the Parliament of the World's Religions, there were 125 different religions. The only religion that was not invited was biblical Christianity. They could not fit this way of thinking into their notion of human. So it's very interesting that this particular pie or pizza will not allow Christianity to express itself. You'll see that a little later. Now, interfaith is not new. You know, this is one of the new things we're being told. Finally, all the religions are coming together. As a matter of fact, when Paul went to Athens and saw all these different altars, that was ancient interfaith. They weren't fighting. They were celebrating, in a sense, their unity. In the Middle Ages, this Sufi poet, Ibn Arabi, says this, My soul is a mosque for Muslims, a temple for Hindus, an altar for Zoroastrians, a church for Christians, synagogue for Jews, and a pasture for gazelles. You got the ecology of the too, see? Now, he would be popular for some Muslims today, uh, as he describes his soul as a church and a synagogue, but that's the Sufi vision, which is growing in Islam. Today. But see, that's that's a vision of all the religions together. It's not new. And religions of the East are counting on this coming together. It's happening. Buddhist spokesman says it is in the area of personal religious awakening that transcends specific traditions some Buddhists find the greatest chance for common ground with other traditions. Have you noticed this tendency in certain forms on the edges of evangelicalism to undermine or underplay, downplay doctrine and emphasize experience? I can't help but feel that this is part of this general move to get rid of doctrine or thought, really, for the sake of mere experience. You know, people today say, I'm spiritual but not religious. That's what they mean. They mean, I don't want any notions of religious ideas of divine revelation. I just want to be spiritual. Find the essence of who I am and get along with everybody else that way. Well, this is exactly what's happening in particular in the interfaith movement and happening in the hearts of people. Here's the inspiration of that book, The Coming of the Interspiritual Age, namely Brother Wayne Teasdale. We are entering a new age, decisive humanity, the interspiritual, discovering a universal religious identity. You see, this oneness is not just in one area. It's taking place in many areas, including, you see, religions. They're all planning to come together. And here's just, I'm not going to go through this, but this is a screen to show you some of the organizations committed to bringing all the world's religions together. You cannot poo-poo this. And you can bet that every one of those systems is a oneness system and is open to all the things that we will denounce today. So that the movement for the normalization of homosexuality and gay marriage, it will be expressed in these various religious movements. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that the world is not one. Now, I, I think this is a major problem for the system, because if all is one, why is the present time no good? 
it should be what we're looking for, if we're all already. But they come up with a good reason to say why we're not now united. It's not the problem of human beings, by the way. The heart of humanity is sound. We know that there's no ultimate egotism in the human heart, right? so we can deal with that. Alice Bailey was a, a, a theosophist. The problem is that the human being is actually asleep. The reason why we're not joined together and I see some of you are asleep, it's maybe time for you to stop. Um, okay, wake up. Um, we're asleep in this sense. And the ancient Gnostics said this too, so there's nothing new. If you look at these, we're asleep because we fail to realize that we are actually divine within. So we live in this power of ignorance, and we need to break through that, wake up, and realize who we really are. But you see, in the meantime, as we live in this world of maya, of illusion, because we don't really see that we are divine, we make distinctions. Now these are bad, and we've got to stop making distinctions. This utopia will only come about when we've stopped making distinctions, when we've actually got rid of all distinctions. I wonder why that would be the case. It's because, of course, that oneism cannot abide distinctions. It has to bring everything together. Twoism, the biblical worldview, lives with distinctions, and especially the distinction between God and the creation. And that's precisely what has to go. We live in the illusion of distinctions. And so we have to get rid of them if we want to solve our problems. Now this is very interesting, because at the very beginning of this new spiritual movement is a statement, it's implicit, is a statement that in order for this to come about, we have to destroy Christianity. Was I too sensational? See this? The first distinction we have to eliminate is the distinction between God and creation. Theism or monism, or what I now call twoism or oneism. That distinction must go. God must be eliminated from this place of distinction. So the creator-creature distinction must be eliminated. I, I mean, you can't be more explicit at the end of the day because the Bible begins with that statement of God's difference from us, doesn't it? I mean, that's the programmatic statement at the beginning of the Bible. Everything else from Genesis 1, 1, 1 is coming to In the beginning, God, in the beginning was only God, created the heavens and the earth. So everything else is creation. God isn't. God's the creator. That creator creature distinction is at the essence of biblical faith, and if we let it go, we've lost everything. Really. Now, it doesn't sound like I'm talking about the gospel. Isn't that a shame? And yet, that's the very essence of the gospel, you see. Without that notion of the creator-creature distinction, there is no gospel. If you get rid of that, you don't need a gospel, by the way. <laughs> if the human is divine, you don't need a gospel. If we are creatures, and to boot, fallen, then we need saving by God who is transcendent and other than us. That's the beauty of the gospel. So, I've not talked about the gospel, but I'm implicitly assuming its reality in this lecture and way of thinking. So we have to, we have to eliminate the distinction between man, animal and human, Christ and Satan, Life and death, heaven and hell, truth and falsehood, right and wrong, good and evil, sin and holiness, the Bible and other scriptures. Some of you are trying to take notes. 
monotheism, polytheism, which is the same. The traditional family alternate. You, you know, you'll never watch the news the same again. I hope. Because, you see, all these things of distinction are now being crushed, being eliminated. But you can put them, you can put them into some kind of a context. It's not that things are awful, they are, but it's that what is progressing is a particular worldview that wants to eliminate distinction. Parents and children, love and pornography, monogamy or polygamy. Polygamy is soon to come, no question. Male, female. We've seen a long generation of the getting rid of the distinction between males and females. We have to see this battle of the sexes that's been going on since the 60s as a battle for oneism and twoism. For too long, we thought about this in terms of power, male chauvinism, but not in terms of the truest worldview. And that's the essence of why we affirm the male-female distinction. It's not for power. It's for the way the world is put together. We can go into that. Homosexuality and heterosexuality. You see, the subject of today finds its ultimate roots within this whole vision of what's going on. Many homosexuals don't understand that, I agree. But this is the context of what I said earlier, the joining of the opposites and the breaking and the end of distinction, the wiping out of difference. This is the everyday agenda to eliminate the world of so-called Maya illusion, but this is the way God made the world. It's not illusion at all, it's reality. But for this ideology to succeed, it has to proceed along these lines. There's one solution. As I indicated earlier, the only solution, if it's true that the human being is the microcosm of the macrocosm, then, then the solution is not going looking for a God somewhere outside, but to look for the solution within. When I first uh, came back to the States in 1901. and came to Quebec. Je parle français. Je devais donner des cours en français. Sorry, where are we? Uh, <laughs> this is Ontario. Are we Ontario? Yeah. You don't speak French here? <laughs> Some of you do, I know. <laughs> anyway, I came to Canada through the French uh, entry, border entry. And, um, I was teaching in the theological school in Montreal, the evangelical school, and uh, my hosts had a book on the table, and I started reading it at night. You know what it's called? Going Within, Shirley McClellan. Going Within. And really that was the first time, this was probably 1988 or 89. And I, I read that book, and, and for the first time, I began to discover the power of stuff. And, and of course, that was a bestseller. That, now that's all old hat, and I can tell you a lot about that. But the point is, she was telling people, actually, that was the title, Going Within. In order to understand the world to change it, you have to go within. And you see, this is where these various techniques come in handy for going within. Yoga is a Sanskrit word meaning huge. It's a huge notion. Sorry. That was also a joke. <laughs> you know, I have English humor. I know you don't. <laughs> it means union. Union with God. So, you know, you can't sort of say, well, you know, it's harmless. This is, it's goal. And uh, the goal is to be united 
with God. Here's another interesting side of things. We're talking about this in the car driving up here. The silencing of the mind. How much do we see this now in evangelicalism in churches where we don't want to think too much. In fact, the less thinking, the better. I love those songs you chose, which engage our spirits, but also our minds in Christ alone. Holy, holy, you know. This is how we're meant to worship a God who is separate from us. It's using the mind that makes distinctions. And distinguishes between us and the Creator. But here it is in uh, Buddhism. We must consciously destroy the mind, keep your intellect at a respectful distance when you study mythology. That which separates you from God is mind. Isn't that incredible? The most amazing thing in this entire cosmos is the human mind. Everybody says that. But the way to get in touch with this particular God is to destroy the mind. There's something fishy going on here. Right? Now when your kids come to you and say, I didn't do my homework because I was trying to destroy my mind. You know, don't believe them. Don't let them off the hook. But you see, this is precisely what we're being told. We have to get into altered states of consciousness in order to really come to grip with the essence of the way things are. And it's interesting that the word mantra that has come to be used in the West is again a Sanskrit word made up of two words, man to think and try to be liberated from. So you say this mantra over and over and over again. And we were talking about some churches that sing the same one line 20 times. It, it's, it's really strange. Now they're not pagans, okay, but it, to me it's, it's leading in the wrong direction. We cannot silence the mind because God created it. But you see, the whole goal of this rejection of uh, these differences is the joining of the opposites. Bringing all the distinctions into one fused oneism. The conjunction oppositorum. This has become very clear in my mind. Uh, see, I'm still using that. Um, Philip Goldberg just wrote a book, American Veda. Veda is Indian philosophy. And the thesis of this book, just came out two years ago, is that North America has become Hindu. And he says, and he's in favor of course. And he says that the, the, the message that we must hear from now on is the Sanskrit word Advaita. You know what that means? Well, it means not to. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the battle is joined at this level of one or two. Is the world one or is it two? And of course, this vision says it's not two, it's one. So this is the programmatic statement of this ideology as it makes its progress throughout the Western world. Not to, must become a reality in the West. So the age of Aquarius will be the age of synthesis, the coming of the goddess, the Sophianic millennium, and all peoples and faiths will be united around the divine feminine. The divine feminine is really simply an image of nature. Well, I'm going to have to go through these slides, and jump these slides, you know, so forgive me. Uh, I'm just proving to you that there are two religions, not just one, and they're all the same. There are two fundamentally different religions, the esoteric and the exoteric, but I don't have time for that slide. Not for this slide, unfortunately, but go to Joe's church 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.